Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the co- <coughs> Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Hello everyone, I'm Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon. And this week we are going to be talking about another George Orwell essay. But before we do, Simon, how are you and how is that tequila you're drinking? Well, to be more specific, we made, uh, we made some cocktails tonight, margaritas. Oh, I love it. It's, it's, I think I like it more than you. This is really down my alley. You like it more than me and I've done this podcast with you for months. <laughs> so it's, um, <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, it's got... Tequila, Cointreau, and lime juice, and a bit of salt around it. Oh, that's delicious, isn't it? I didn't know this is my first margarita. Did you? It's not your first margarita, is it? No, no, I've had many a margarita. Um, this is my first one. I had no idea it had Cointreau in it, and as I said earlier, it's um, quite an interesting mix of flavours. How does this compare to margaritas you have had in Mexico, in Mexico? Well, actually, in Mexico, I never had a margarita. Um, I've only ever had them out. No, this is good because you get two types. This is what um, I guess we just call on the rocks, and the other one is frozen, where you do it with shaved ice, and they're both lovely. I think I prefer it like this, but I love the the sourness mixed with the salt and the and the Cointreau. Oh, that's a lovely cocktail. This week we are talking about the George Orwell essay "Money and Guns," which was. Actually, clickbait. this, in a way, is not an essay. It was originally part of something called Through Eastern Eyes and first appeared in the world at large on the 20th of January 1942. Now, Simon, when I say this wasn't actually an essay, uh, do you have any idea, or did you have any idea before, what Through Eastern Eyes was? I didn't before, I do now. It's spoken rather than written, am I right? Yes, this is basically a script for something that George Orwell would have read out uh, on the radio because during the war, during the Second World War, George Orwell worked for the BBC and he worked for the Indian service of the BBC and he was a bit sceptical when he first took on this job because he didn't expect it to have any real impact in India. And as it turns out, he was right to be sceptical, because the vast majority of Indians at that time didn't have access to radios, and those who did have access to radios were generally anti-British because of British colonial involvement in India, so they weren't really listening to the BBC. Despite that, though, uh, I think this is a really good essay, and um, it was not what I expected. Was it what you expected, Simon? No, not at all. Not with the title. Are there any recordings of Orwell available? There is not a single recording of George Orwell's voice. We do not know what he sounded like, which is surprising for someone who was born long after the invention of recorded sound. So these radio shows he did were never logged and... They were either done live or the recordings were wiped, as often happened at the BBC in the old days. Oh, what a pity. 
But we do have the scripts, and they survive as damn fine essays. Yeah. So when I read the title, Clickbait, I wasn't expecting this. What were you expecting from Money and Guns? Something about the sale of arms to decolonized countries and the morality of how we do it and how it's just a new form of imperialism and controlling the third world. Something like that. What were you thinking? Well, I noticed that it had been published during the war, so I thought it would probably be something to do with the financing of war. Uh, and I wasn't too far off, but there's actually... I think this essay really showcases, and it's a minor essay, and this says a lot about George Orwell, that it's a minor essay, but it's so good. It really showcases Orwell's extraordinary lightness of touch, I think, because this is a very short essay. It's, what, uh, one, two, three, four pages long. But in this essay is encapsulated Orwell's ideas about leisure, luxury, war, and economics. And all of that in a very smooth, very readable, or listenable, as it was originally, format. Yeah, we come back to that theme of how less is more with Orwell. Getting back to basics. So let's start off. At the beginning of the essay, Orwell points out that on the walls of wartime London, you will see incongruous things side by side, as he writes, uh, a newspaper poster with the news of a great battle in Russia or the Far East, and next to that will be the news of a football match or a boxing contest. And maybe on the wall nearby you, you will see side by side a government advertisement urging young women to join the ATS, and another advertisement, generally rather grimy and tattered looking, urging the public to buy beer or whiskey. And perhaps that makes you stop and ask yourself, how can a people fighting for its life find time for football matches? Isn't there something contradictory in urging people to give up their lives to their country's service and at the same time urging them to spend their money on luxuries? And then he basically tells us what the point of the essay is. Recreation in wartime and its importance. Yeah. And he, he specifies the kind of recreation he means here, doesn't he? which is something I know I can definitely relate to. Not much of a boxing or soccer fan yourself, are you? No, no, I'm not. Uh... But it's really interesting. His interests here lie in the, in the mathematics of human application during wartime. Why outgoing leisure might be more economically useful as well as more pleasurable than staying indoors with self-gratification. Which is something that was encouraged before the war in a less uh, cohesive, more individualistic, consumerist society. What parallel can you draw from this to the situation we find ourselves in now in 2021 during the coronavirus pandemic? Well, uh, I think we can draw a number of parallels. From what we've just mentioned, there's been a lot of language, particularly in Britain, um, drawing parallels between wartime and the pandemic and it's not really I don't think it's a, an appropriate parallel because yes it's a time of national crisis and everyone's kind of going through the same thing but it's very different because at that time during the war 
people could still come together and in fact in order to make themselves feel better they came together in groups they enjoyed as Orwell points out communal uh, entertainments communal recreation yeah. and of course because of the nature of the coronavirus we can't do that we have to stay isolated and wouldn't it have been interesting to hear his thoughts on now's pandemic where he would have been encouraging us to embrace self-gratification and things we can do in our own time indoors. However, I Which would think, have been reading, I imagine. Yes, I, I don't think... When you say self-gratification, I'm not sure what Orwell would have approved of when it came to I know what self-gratification you approve. Reading. Yes, yes. Can't, can't wait to get it out. A book, I mean. <laughs> um, Making cocktails. Entertaining your elderly Japanese neighbour. Yes, that, that was with, good. With point. bottles of Calvados. God, he loves that Calvados. <laughs> so, Simon, what Lewis. is it about Orwell and leisure? Recently we were talking about the Orwell essay, Pleasure Spots, yeah. and we see this theme running throughout the works of Orwell, right from his earliest works, earliest published works down and out in Paris and London, right up until the final essays he published before he died. What is it about Orwell and leisure? leisure time well like everybody in society understands we need that leisure time to create equilibrium within ourselves and within our lives he just has his very specific ideas about what leisure should be and what for him it is in, in the essay he says the amusements which can be encouraged are games sport music the radio dancing literature and the arts generally most of these are things in which you create your amusement for yourself rather than paying other people to create it for you. And I think the key lies in that last part, doesn't it? He's not too keen on the commodification of leisure. He doesn't see the point when there's so much we can do for gratification that's free, that, re that revolves around us getting together as a community and doing something which is good for us physically, mentally and spiritually. Exactly, and he points out later in the essay, right at the end, how one of the good things to come out of the war, as he puts it, is that we have had to simplify our lives and fall back more and more on the resources of our own minds instead of synthetic pleasures manufactured for us in Hollywood or by the makers of silk stockings, alcohol and chocolates. And that is a very Orwellian point, this idea of in the importance of independent thought, of cultivating your mind, of improving yourself and of not just uh, doing what the masters of the consumer society society want you to do which is buying your oh pleasure. george had you not died in 1950 exactly um, <laughs> didn't you find it rather you, you just missed out on the consumer age you would have been disgusted this has really helped me to understand something about orwell's later essays um i think that Reading an essay like this, written during the war, really illuminates other essays like Pleasure Spots and like Common Toad, because um, it shows us that Common Toad and Pleasure Spots were Orwell's attempt to... They, they were published after the war, and I think they were Orwell's attempt to remind people that they shouldn't lose what they had gained during the war, that ability to enjoy simple pleasures and to... Uh, work and live outside out with the consumerist society yeah and do you know what which other previous podcast this brought me back to was decline of an english murder 
Really? Where he is, again, warning us of the, to our detriment, the influence of Americanization and Hollywood. For which And reason? by the way, that's no slight on the American no, people. No, no. I mean, the consumerism the consumer that comes society. out of Hollywood mm-hmm. and, yeah, and the big corporations there. Exactly. I love that bit. Instead of on synthetic pleasures manufactured for us in Hollywood. I love that. Exactly. Synthetic pleasures. What's your greatest synthetic pleasure, Luke? My greatest synthetic pleasure. Well, of course, you know. Stockings you wear. (laughs) No, they're they're not synthetic. They're pure natural (laughs) fibre. I'd say my greatest synthetic pleasures are either alcohol, um, particularly... Uh, you and I live in Japan and we like Japanese beer and Japanese sake, but it doesn't always go with the food we want to eat. So I do spend a lot, I shouldn't say a lot of my family (laughs) listen to this. I do spend maybe more money than I should on um, fancy imported booze. Well, you do spend more, but it's not on quantity, but quality. True, but it's still... Mr and Mrs Hurst, he's not drinking too much, he's just drinking better. (laughs) <laughs> drinking smarter. Drinking smarter, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so there's that. And of course, you know, I, I watch Netflix and Amazon Prime and things like that. But Do you know what I'm hooked on? What? YouTube. Oh, yes. Do you watch much YouTube? Uh, I watch a bit of YouTube. What catches me is you watch a video, then down the right-hand side of the page, there's all links to similar things. And then I find myself clicking on one of those, and I started watching a video on otters. And three hours later, I'm watching a wombat boxing with a Tasmanian devil. That sounds like and you I don't end- know how I got there. It's like you ended up on the dark web there eventually, <laughs> dark YouTube. Um, that's I not think- otter, that's beaver. We've got to keep that on it. Um, uh, so I think that it's not wrong. Synthetic pleasures are not wrong, but... I think they ought to be balanced with the kind of Orwellian pleasures that the the master himself... They're not wrong to us because we were born into it. We've grown up in that society. But for Orwell, when he's writing this in 42, when would he have watched his first Hollywood movie? Maybe 10 years earlier? 15 years earlier? Perhaps. He was a young man. He didn't grow up with Hollywood. No, he did like the cinema, though. We've talked before about how he really loved the films of Charlie Chaplin. So I don't think he's saying that synthetic pleasures are wrong. It's just that they shouldn't be all your pleasure. Yeah. I think his, his uh, point is that we shouldn't rely solely on synthetic pleasures because, as he points out in later essays like Pleasure Spots, listen to that uh, podcast if you haven't already, as he points out, if we just enjoy synthetic pleasures, then it drains our life of quality. Yeah. And he says we've half forgotten gardening, swimming, dancing, singing, reading and walking. Let's go through these, Lewis. Like, we know each other very well. Let's go through these and see if we have neglected these. Reading? No. No. We both are avid readers. Yeah. Walking? Yes, I, I take a long walk every day. As We're both avid walkers. Um, gardening. Guilty. Now, yes, guilty, but that's because I don't have access to a garden. I live on the 10th floor. What a balcony. How many pot plants do you have on your balcony? That's the thing. I live in a country uh, where there are typhoons, and if I leave pot plants out on the balcony, there's a good chance that they could just be blown off and kill someone. Bullshit! <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, swimming. 
Now, I used to swim a lot when I lived in Scotland, but I'm a bit intimidated by Japanese swimming pools, so I don't do much swimming. Either. What's it about Japanese swimming pools? They're very, very regimented. You've got to be in the right lane. You've got to wear right. a swimming cap. And of course, now with the coronavirus, I'm even more uh, loath to get into a swimming pool. So Lewis, how about dancing? Uh, again, when I was in Scotland, I used to do a lot of Kaylee dancing, but I don't do so much anymore. And singing? I love singing. The problem is... We live in the land of karaoke. Yes, uh, sadly though, again with Corona, I haven't been for a long time, but I do love singing and uh, I sing for pleasure at home. So to those of you listening to this, have you half forgotten about these simple pleasures? And that's not a, an exhausted list, there's plenty more. Uh, let us know which forgotten pleasures do exist out there and have you forgotten them or, or not? And which, which ones would you like to get back? How about you, Lewis? Which forgotten pleasure would you like to get back into your life that Orwell would approve of? I tell you what, Simon, um, and you, you could probably guess this, my biggest pleasure in Japan before the coronavirus. I would say Sento. Sentos. Going yeah. to Sentos, which in, if any of our listeners don't know, Japanese public baths. Um, for me, we're going to talk a bit more about luxury and the idea of luxury in a moment, but for me... The greatest luxury was going to a sento, paying a pittance and sitting in a hot bath up to my neck and just looking up at that mural of Mount Fuji on the wall. That was my greatest luxury in, in Japan. And I haven't done it since the pandemic started. And well, I look forward is, to the day I can Lewis got again. me into sentos and we've been to many sentos together. The first one he ever took me to in a neighbourhood, um, Irabashi in Tokyo, we went into this old center, which has been there for years and years, and it was decorated in old World War II Imperial Navy ship models and pictures. And Still, you were fascinated by I was that. fascinated, but a tad disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> I think you remember more World War II memorabilia than there was. There was just the one <laughs> ship with a tiny flag on it. I was, it was so hot in there, I think I was seeing quadruples. My first time in a hot bath like that. But yeah, I recommend it to anyone that comes here to Japan. Get yourself to a sento or an onsen. But that is probably my greatest simple pleasure in Japan. How about you? What 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 simple pleasure would you like to get back to? Um, I, I I'm going to get back to it, but it's not through any fault of my own. I'm I'm absolutely obsessed with galleries and museums, and I'll visit one a week. But because of the pandemic, I haven't been for over a year to any museum. So as soon as they open again, we're allowed to get back to those. I'm, that's something I desperately miss. Could you ever imagine enjoying an Orwellian pleasure like growing your own carrots or making your own wine? The latter, yes. Uh, your, your father makes honey, doesn't he? Well, the bees make honey. Well, the bees make honey. He, he's, he's not that talented. He cultivates them. Whenever you tell me about that, it kind of appeals to me. Making something of my own, which I can share with my friends. Um, alcohol, I'd be a bit nervous about making alcohol. Um, do you know what I'd like to grow my own fruit and make my own jam, that kind of thing. Something I'd love as well. Yeah. The problem is, you know, you, you want to do this as a young man, well, youngish. Um, Behave. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do this as a young man. That's got a bloody pocket watch. On <laughs> you want to do this as a young man, but often you don't have, you know, you're not settled, you don't have that plot of land, yeah. and then... You get old and you have the time, but then you're like, you know, you 
put a crick in your back digging up mm -hmm. the carrots. Uh, I hope to have a long retirement and there's many things. I, I won't be a complacent retiree, I know it. I, I definitely won't just let time slip by. I know I'm going to be very active. No, I feel but, much the same way. Like, body willing, of course. But... Wait, where were we? Can I read out a quote to you? Please do. It's, it's, a, it's a rather long one, so I hope I, hope I don't go on. But he said, um, we have learned now, for, however, that money is valueless in itself and only goods count. What do you think about that? I love that quote. It made me think, do you think that so far, no, do you think that so far out of all the George Orwell essays we've read, this is the one in which we most see the influence of Karl Marx on George Orwell? This focus on goods, the importance of goods, the importance of labour. There's another part here where he's, he's talking about uh, football matches and how... This is definitely the socialist in him coming Yes, he, he, he writes, that brings me back to the thing I mentioned a few minutes ago, the newspaper report of a football match side by side with the report of a battle. Is it not all wrong that 10,000 citizens of a nation at war should spend two hours in watching a football match? Not really. For the only labour they are monopolising is the labour of the 22 players. So I, I, I really thought this sounds like a man who has at least been thinking in kind of Marxist terms. This is, he's very much writing this in Marxist terms and traditional Marxism. This is before Gramsci or anybody else has slightly altered this concept of labour, capital and exchange. But, you know, I think our listeners like us to adapt what we're reading in these essays to current society and I'm very much of the school that we, we've kind of moved beyond this system of uh, capital exchange through labour and we're now living in a world of credit and the exchange of credit and enhancement of credit for what we can gain in society. What do you think that means for luxury then, because another big, uh, another big part of this essay is the idea of luxury and paying for luxury. There is a point where he hints that he thinks that some luxuries are luxuries for good reason. He writes, to make a rough division, the luxuries which have to be discarded in wartime are the more elaborate kinds of food and drink, fashionable clothes, cosmetics and scents, all of which either demand a great deal of labour or use up rare imported materials. So he does acknowledge there that luxuries are luxuries because there's some kind of value to them. But I think he also is suggesting that a luxury is only a luxury because it is said to be a luxury. It really reminded me of this part of Down and Out in Paris and London, where he writes, for after all, where is the real need of big hotels and smart restaurants? They are supposed to provide luxury, but in reality they provide only a cheap, shoddy imitation of it. No doubt hotels and restaurants must exist, but there is no need that they should enslave hundreds of people. What makes the work in them is not the essentials, it's the shams that are supposed to represent luxury. And I think that's the main quote there, the shams that are supposed to represent luxury. Smartness... Smartness, as it is called, means in effect merely that the staff work more and the customers pay more. No one benefits except the proprietor. Essentially, a smart hotel is a place where a hundred people toil like devils 
in order that 200 may pay through the nose for things they do not really want. So um, this essay really made me think of George Orwell's idea of luxury as linking back to what you said, something that is really only an idea. And that, that reminds me very much of what you said about the idea of credit. So, so what do you make of that? Well, the, Orwell's written this essay in 1942 very much, un, very much under a, a Marxist doctrine. And for him, luxury is part of this credit uh, capital exchange. So you work hard, you make money, you spend that money on luxury to justify the labor you've put into something. Okay. Whereas now, luxuries through credit are, are much more available because you, what labor you put in to deserving the luxury is irrelevant to how you acquire the luxury. They are more for the enhancement of your personal social capital. Look at Instagram. You've got people standing next to Ferraris, which they've borrowed for a day, or wearing a Versace handbag, which they don't own, or they've bought on credit with money they don't have. Yet they're attracting credit to themselves by having that photo of them with the Versace, and there serves the purpose of the luxury good. Not as a result of labour, but as an enhancement of credit. I don't think that is a necessarily new thing. I think it's just a lot more widespread. Well, he's just said it in the hotel. Mm. It's kind of, that's what it was back when, in the thirties, mm. twenties when he wrote that. It's just evolved into a more technological. Yes. Industry. And it's more widespread than it was because when yeah. Orwell was writing this, it was a small segment of society paying for luxuries, the kind of people who would be in the gossip columns. But these yeah. days, Anyone with a smartphone can have an Instagram account yeah. and wants to be seen with these luxuries. So luxury is no longer a result of necessarily a result of labour. When I say labour, I mean hours put into labour, which should result in capital, which you can spend on luxuries. It's, it's no longer that. It's just who has access to credit and enhancement of social portfolios. But Simon, I wanted to ask you, is luxury always hollow? Is it always just a label? You mentioned earlier how, you know, I may spend money on imported booze, but at least it's good quality imported booze. Yeah. Is, can we say that luxuries can be wholesome? You know, they're not just kind of hollow pleasure. Of course, it's subjective, isn't it? What's a luxury for you? If you've got the weekend off, I'm going to treat myself. What's a luxury for you? Well, it's buying a new book and then maybe sitting down with a nice glass of gin and tonic on the balcony. I was going to say, for you, I would say just being somewhere with the breeze against your face and a nice view, your wife by your side, sipping on a G&T, having a lovely conversation or reading a good book. For you, that's luxury, isn't it? How much money are you spending on that? It's only, not hollow. Only the money on the gin and tonic and the book. Yeah, your imported gin. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not a lot. You see what I'm getting at here? So it's very subjective. So for you, luxury is very sensory. And I don't think that's hollow at all. I think it's actually very endearing and satisfying. Whereas for somebody else, luxury is just impressing upon another person. Being seen driving a Ferrari. To me and my subjectivity, that's a bit hollow. Mm. Do you think there's a difference between public enjoyment of luxury and private enjoyment of luxury. Yeah, because I think the communal, communal creativity goes beyond the individual, doesn't it? And what we enjoy in a communal spirit is often very different to what we enjoy. You wouldn't enjoy sitting, drink, drinking a G&T in a crowded train station. 
but so just for a, a just on a side note later next week the european championships for football is in play england my country is playing scotland lewis's country i'm a big football fan so i'm really looking lewis isn't a football fan at all but you could get behind that game we even mentioned watching it together and making a thing of it didn't we mm. What is it that would get you interested in that game? Is it the sense of community? It's the sense the of community, not just the sense of community with my own country, but the sense of community with you, my, yeah. my friend who's into football and who I'd like to share that experience with, which gets back to... Would you watch it on your own? No, no, I wouldn't. There you go. Um, and that, you know, referring to like fancy imported booze, a drink's always nicer when you share it with someone, when you have a bottle between you. Or have a shit day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, please drink responsibly. Yes. Uh, but that's exactly what Orwell's... No, no less than five. <laughs> it's responsible. Does that, does that get into it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, but that's exactly what Orwell's writing about as well, is how in wartime there was a lot more enjoyment of communal pleasures. And in a way, that is something we have lost. You know, uh, Do you remember like you know, our grandparents and great-grandparents' generation, Simon? They loved gardening, they loved having a sing-song, and it all seemed a bit kind of old-fashioned to us, but it's those they are things... street parties to mm. my grandparents. Mm. And it's something we've lost, but do you think... I, I've started to wonder if once the worst of the pandemic is over, I think people are starting to get rather hungry for communal pleasures again, meeting yeah. people, being well, in a they'll crowded They'll be um, nervous at first, they'll be a bit contentious, but... Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are fantasizing about what we can do as a community now. And Going to the theatre. Yeah. Being in a crowded pub surrounded by people watching the football. I've read that three times this week in previews of the European Championships where people have all said that I look forward to be surrounded by other misguided people watching this silly sport, getting far too emotional about it, but just being around other people feeling the same. Speaking of sport, it was a big blow to you last year when there was no sport on, wasn't it? I mean, I could see it in your, in you know, I could see it when I spoke to you. You were genuinely rather upset that there was no sport on. A large portion of my life, my social life, at a stroke was just taken away and it left an almighty void. I made no secret of the fact I am absolutely obsessed with sports both playing and watching spectator sports i watch everything and it not happening for a while was devastating to me i, I honestly sat there wondering what on earth to do on a lot of evenings and i and speaking as someone it's a wonderful form of escapism for me so even though i'm not that into sport i can really sympathize with folk like simon whose pandemic pandemic was made much worse by the suspension of all sporting activity but when sporting activity without crowds was resumed, it really helped my pandemic situation. I very much look forward to watching something when there were less things to do in my other, in my real life. And you mentioned how they were without crowds. At first, I was very sceptical of this um, synthetic piping in of chants. You know, they used yeah. recordings from the old days to because they didn't want these guys to be playing a football match in silence with just a bit of grunting and you know. well they were playing in silence it's only the, it's only the tv yes. viewers that could hear they it. they didn't want the viewers to see that but mm. now 
I can rather understand because the viewers don't want to watch something in silence and, yeah. and still be reminded of the loss of that communal activity. Exactly. What does that tell you about the human need for communal spirit? Exactly. To be, to be part of a crowd. I watched a few games without the added sound and it was awful. It was eerie, so I just put the sound back on, the fake sound, in the future. It's like watching cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Simon, why we mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast that this was broadcast on the Indian service of the BBC. Why do you think Orwell was telling listeners in India about the recreation of people in Britain during the war? Would it be because his job at the BBC is keeping India on side? It's keeping them interested in the war and explaining to them, listen, we're having it hard over here too. So feel a bit of sympathy for us. Don't go and discard us just yet. And join the Japanese. Yeah, like we're, we're having a hard time there and we need you. Go on, pull alongside, guys. Because he was working for yes. propaganda, basically. Well, yes, and I think there is a heavy element of propaganda in this essay because he mentions, you know, a people, Britain, the British are a people fighting for their life. And uh, he mentions the bombing in London and how, despite all this, there is a sense of community and betterment and people reading better quality books. And I think it's meant to make the listeners in India feel positive thoughts, feel positive feelings and think positive thoughts about Britain. Let's not forget, this is this was broadcast in 1942. Singapore had fallen, Burma had fallen, um, and the Japanese were making overtures to Indian nationalists, uh, trying to get them on side, saying, we will liberate you from your colonial oppressors. So I think, really, Orwell is trying to... Um, paint a very positive picture of Britain for the Indian listener. Yeah. And it just so happens that Orwell is the best man to do that because he genuinely loves Britain and Britishness and he understands it. And he would have despised what the Japanese at the time stood for. Just be swapping one kind of colonialism for another. Exactly. Right? And a, a colonialism based on far-right nationalism and totalitarianism, which he despised. And also, I think that this essay is quite, uh, it's a bit of a Trojan horse, because yes, it's propaganda. Yes, it was done for the government and for the BBC in time of war. But as we mentioned before, there are all these strands of thoughts, ideas that Orwell developed right up until the end of his life. Leisure, bettering yourself, creativity, reading the importance of enjoying the simple things in life, the enjoying the simple things in life as a political act and as a subversive and, and individualistic, but not individualistic in, in a kind of neoliberal way, but asserting your freedom in the face of hom the homogenization of capitalism. Yeah. Orwell managed to get all of that, all of those ideas, into what was basically propaganda to keep India on side during the war. It's wonderful because the whole idea of the India being a part of the British Empire was because it was imperative to our free market capitalism. 
having that huge market for our goods and to import their goods. Yet he's using this essay to get this on side by, and it's a Marxist essay. And it's a critique <laughs> of free market capitalism. Exactly, because yeah. He finishes the essay by um, saying, under the pressure of the necessity of the war, we are rediscovering the simple pleasures, reading, walking, gardening, swimming, dancing, singing, which we had half forgotten in the wasteful years before the war, the wasteful years of uh, consumerism before the war. And of course, we, we know, as Simon mentioned earlier, we're going to get wasteful consumerist years after the war too. Nehru was a Marxist, wasn't he? Certainly a, lot of, a lot of them were, these leaders. Yeah. So of, they're listening to this thing. Ah, here we go. So Marxist Britain is telling us to stay on side through the BBC. It must have been interesting for them. And I reckon it would have worked had it just been naked capitalism in these propaganda radio broadcasts. Or it just patriotism. Or just patri It wouldn't have appealed to these people at all. But the communal spirit of his broadcasts, the promise of equity in society must have appealed and said okay until this war's over we can get on site and then we'll have our time do you not think so do oh, you yes. think that was delivered do you think this is just orwell's inner beliefs coming out or do you reckon there was a bit of calculation to his radio broadcast as well as to what he knew would appeal and or wouldn't make people feel nauseous listening in india I just think it is the perfect... They got the right man for the job, I think. So the editors of the radio programme did the good job here by getting Orwell on board. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, but then Orwell, I think, very deliberately smuggled in a lot of his own ideas into what could have been just a very basic propaganda broadcast. When did Kipling die? 36. Okay, had Kipling still been alive, getting him on the radio broadcast wouldn't have worked, would it? No, I don't think the uh, the nationalists of India would have wanted to listen to Kipling. Or someone of his ilk, of whom there were still many in 1942. Well, Churchill was convinced that once the war was over, everything would go back to normal. And uh, the British Empire... What was it he said in his speech? If the British Empire and its Commonwealth lasts for a thousand, a thousand years. years... This was still be our greatest hour. And, well, <laughs> the, 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 com the British Empire lasted, you know, it began to break up about five well, years. Yeah, effectively it lasted another two years mm -hmm. <laughs> with, with the partition. You mentioned just before that about reading. And in this essay, I get the impression that he's loving the resurg resurgence of reading. Part of my pronunciation, these margaritas, I think, are kicking home. What do you think of the second one, where you had to use lime cordial to mix in with the lime juice? It's a different experience from the first one, certainly. It's much more lime and less... I'm enjoying uh, it. Uh, no, I like it too, but... Um, Should we just make a lime cordial with tequila and Cointreau mix? That'd be very nice. After the podcast. Mm -hmm. yeah. If anyone wants to listen into our After Hours podcast, where we just let go... Well, where Simon lets go and I react. Please ask Lewis's wife for permission to release such podcast. <laughs> yeah, he's loving the resurgence of reading. Why are people reading more in 1942? Well, as Orwell points out, uh, you've got a lot of men in the army. And uh, what they often say about being in the army, particularly during wartime, is it's long, long periods of boredom 
punctuated by periods of sheer terror. We've both read Spike Milligan, yes. haven't we? And his books are about 99% is sitting around doing bugger all. Sitting around in your barracks, nothing to do. So a lot of young men were reading and they were passing books around. Yeah. And as Orwell points out here, the cheap Penguin and Pelican editions were being passed around and people were opening their minds and reading things that before the war they might have regarded as dull or too intellectual. Yeah, it's great. Can I say, um, recently I got a brilliant book of short stories. I know you're not so into short stories, but I love short stories. And uh, I got a brilliant book of short stories called English Climate, Wartime Stories. And they are short stories written during the Second World War by a woman called Sylvia Townsend Warner. She wrote a lot of stories during the war that were published in the New Yorker, but she was English. And they're all about just the lives of ordinary people, mostly women, on the home front during the war. And there's nothing, you know, it's not about heroism, it's not about living through bombing, it's about the day-to-day, -day, the minutiae of life during the war. And I remember one particular story is about a young man who's stationed, he's in the RAF and he's stationed in some bleak Nissan hut up in Scotland somewhere. And he's, all he does during the day... You said Scotland's bleak, not me. Well, I, I'm willing to admit parts of Scotland are bleak. Um, but he's stationed in some Nissan hut in the middle of nowhere. And all he, do, all he has to do when he's not on duty is read. And he's just, the story is all about him devouring and devouring all these books that he would have never read otherwise. It's a great story. And that is, is exactly what Orwell's talking about. Yeah. And also maybe people who were being bombed in, in various cities, they had to spend a lot of time cramped up in the underground or in bomb shelters all throughout the night. I guess they were red, wouldn't they? And they, with the candles on. Or, as Orwell points out, they even chatted, chatted had concerts. Do you remember that when we used to all talk? When I spoke to my mum about this podcast, she said what she liked was, it was two, I'll put commas, young men, chatting by the campfire, something that she thought had disappeared for, for in our generation, and this gave her hope that people who are still relatively young still just sit down and just talk and share ideas. Well, this is something I wanted there to bring up. There is hope, people. Mm, this is something I wanted to bring up, because you and I, Simon, we do this podcast for fun, don't we? It's our hobby. I'm getting paid. Are you? Who's paying you? Nike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny you should mention that. I'm, I'm getting paid by Marlborough. <laughs> the Duke. <laughs> um, Is that why you're always mentioning and I've, Lenham? Ne <laughs> and I've, next week I've got to start advertising um, the other products. I'm, I'm being paid to advertise uh, Kendall Mint Cake and instruments of torture um, <laughs> but uh, no uh, we do this for fun handkerchiefs <laughs> pocket watches, watches. Uh, we do this for fun this podcast and recently I saw something very thought provoking online which was the current stage of capitalism we're in is a stage of capitalism which is it's draining the dregs of what we can commodify and now capitalism or the commodity society or whatever you want to call it it's encouraging people to monetize their hobbies doing a podcast is essentially a hobby some people make a, a living from it and that's good they're, they're proper broadcasters but 
a lot of people start podcasts or they become YouTubers or they do blogs in the hope that they're going to make some money out of it. Mm. When really, perhaps it would be better that they just did it for the love of it because it's their hobby. Why should we monetize our hobbies? Why yeah. should we always be chasing the dollar? It's called late capitalism. And the problem with late capitalism is there's very few markets there. So they've had to reach into commodifying areas of life and society. And they always talk about out of bounds. Like you said, our hobbies, our thoughts. So now at this at platforms like TikTok, where for 20 seconds you just live or do something silly and it's commodified. Or even uh, how dating apps commodify people. Swipe left. Well, the thing about dating apps is what they're doing is promoting this element of capitalist competition even into the realm of romanticism. So even finding a potential spouse has become a competition based upon very primal instincts, such as how somebody looks. And this is one of the reasons why I think we should read Orwell and why I think it's important to read Orwell, because an essay written a long time ago tells us about our society and how we should react to our society. We should rebel against this commodification of things that shouldn't be commodified, our thoughts, our hobbies, pleasure, leisure. These things should not become commodities. They should be simple, they should be human, and they should be something that we can't be, can't be bought from us or can't be sold to us. Without meaning to sound like an old miser, next time you're enjoying an experience, don't photograph it. Don't record it. Don't feel you have to share it. Just consume it with yourself and the people you're with and enjoy it. And keep it up there in the memory bank. Anyway, another thing I quickly would like to mention that he talks about are people getting back out into their allotments and gardening, growing their own vegetables. He loves that, doesn't he? He does. Do you think you could ever keep an allotment? I would love to. I would love to keep an allotment. Even if, you know, I think I'd be the kind of person who, you know, slugs eight fifty. 50% of what I grew, but I'd still... What would you grow? Um, grow veg, I'd grow fruit. I'd love to grow, like, uh, soft fruit, like raspberries, things like that. Maybe make some jam. I'd really love to make my own wine. My dad makes uh, apple wine. So I'd love to have an apple tree and make apple wine. Um, not cider? Uh, no, I'd love to make cider, too, if I had enough apples. What, what, what about you? Would you grow something? What would you like to grow? Um, yeah, nothing particularly out there, like you, like it, potatoes, Let's do a little bit of potato patch, some veg, um, berries, like blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Much the same as me then. Yeah, very, very similar. And probably a couple of, you were saying that your mum grows her own chilli peppers, I'd like, I'd grow chilli peppers. Um, and maybe one thing which was a bit of an experiment, a bit of a punt, you know, maybe like a Peruvian artichoke or something. <laughs> <laughs> Would you grow anything just for aesthetic purposes? Would you go grow flowers? No. I have to be honest. Gardening it doesn't appeal to me. Just uh, growing practical things out of food. Yeah, it would have to be practical. Any form of gardening I would ever partake in would be very much a Zen thing with rocks and mm. and about balance and things like that. I would love a garden. It's, it's actually 
probably my dearest ambition in life at the moment is to one day have a garden or an allotment. One day, one day. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that does it for this essay. Uh, Before this we end, prediction for England versus Scotland this, next week, soccer, football? Uh, Scotland 50 nil. Scotland 50 nil. Mm. And there you go, listeners, for those of you who ever doubted Lewis doesn't actually like sports. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a draw, a, a tie for I, our American listeners. I think a draw would be quite a good outcome, wouldn't it? Um, depends on what the other results mm. are we have, but I, I think England's a better team. That can't, that's not beyond doubt, but Scotland seem to find something when they play England. <laughs> they seem to just get this extra gear, this extra motivation and they they perform like 11 pele's when england come into town so i think it'll be a draw i've never been one of these you know anyone but england you um, could have bloody fooled me <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say i've never been like that but then I, I then i remember when we were when the rugby world cup came to japan and england england were playing south africa and in the final I in the final been. and it was you know i was saying to simon Oh, I've never been an anyone but England guy. But then there was a Welshman in the room and suddenly we both became the most anglophobic people <laughs> yeah. in Tokyo. No, I was sitting on my own, <laughs> sulking. Right um, then. But it's weird how it works because I like Scotland to do well. Now, when England's not playing, I support Scotland. I want them to do well. I really like them. And I don't, I don't need it to be reciprocated, so don't worry. <laughs> I know it's not. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I really enjoyed that. It was quite a pleasant surprise. And uh, as we always say, all well that ends well. Come on, England. Scotland. <laughs>